You're listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. I'm Jeff MacArthur sitting in for uh, Alan Carter. Nice to have you along. You know, I am such a sucker. Honestly, I am such a sap. Uh, okay, here's what happened. Here's what went down uh, yesterday. So uh, I was off uh, my show yesterday. And by the way, uh, Heather's here with us as always. Uh, I was off because uh, we had the big chorus up front yesterday uh, afternoon and uh, evening. It's this like big party we throw once a year to uh, unveil the big new fall lineup for a global TV. So I get like a bunch of emails yesterday afternoon, right, from uh, Patrick, who uh, does our scheduling and uh, everything here on the radio station. And he's like, Jeff, can you please, this is an urgent, urgent request. Can you please respond to this immediately? Uh, I was wondering if you can sit in for Alan Carter uh, tomorrow, today, Tuesday afternoon. And I didn't see that one right away. It was in my work email. Then I look at my personal Gmail, and I've got one from Patrick there, and it's getting more and more desperate. And I finally responded, like, yeah, Patrick, no, no problems, no sweat. Uh, I figure, you know, Alan Carter, uh, he's probably, I don't know, under the weather, not feeling good, maybe he's a little ill. I mean, it happens from time to time, right? We, we all need a day off. So, you know, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to be like the good company guy, and I'm going to come in and, uh, you know, do an extra hour of radio. Sure, no problems. So, anyways, I go to this party uh, last night, and, like, there's all kinds of folks there. The the Bomblers are there, Brian and Sarah Bomler, great show, uh, Island of Brian on uh, HGTV, talking to them, love them, they're great, good friends. Uh, oh, you know who the big star was, by the way, uh, last night that everybody was clamoring to meet and and to get near? Who? Cookie Monster. Really? Really. Cookie Monster, we, we did an interview, a TV interview with Cookie Monster uh, yesterday, and there's just something about this Muppet that is just so adorable, because Sesame Street, by the way, is celebrating 50, hard to believe, 50 years. Oh and, you know, it just takes you right back to, like, when you were, like, five or seven years old. And, and even though I could see the the guy pulling the strings behind the curtain or whatever, you get sucked in by this character because you've known this character for your whole life, right? And anyways, uh, you know, we do the interview with Cookie Monster, and I put it up on Instagram, and it's <laughs> all kinds of reaction and likes. And People are clamoring around the, the guy in blue last night at uh, this party, uh, like Cookie Monster, I don't know if he's aware, but he's an A-lister. All right? Like, like he is an A-A-lister. So, anyways, uh, you know, I uh, get by Cookie Monster and all that. And lo and behold, uh, who do I see at the bar at the party last night? Well, if it's not Man About Town, Alan Carter. Oh. Having like, a few pops? Yeah, fancy seeing you here, AC. Uh, what's happening? What's going on? I said, uh, I've got a cover for you tomorrow. What? Like, what? I thought you were, like, sick or whatever. Oh, no, 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 I'm uh, I'm getting on a plane. I'm heading to California to uh, cover the Raptors and the Warriors. Must be nice. Right. Okay. Yeah, that, that's the way this is going to work. All right. So right now, Alan Carter is flying business class somewhere, probably having a, uh, a giblet. Do they sell that? Or is it a gimlet? Isn't it a gimlet? A gimlet, yeah. No, giblets are something else, yeah. Sure. It comes in your Thanksgiving giblets. turkey, yeah. <laughs> He's probably in there, business class, enjoying a few of those and some peanuts and whatever else uh, they Maybe offer. Both. Yeah. Anyways, well, he's winging his way to sunny California. Some of us are uh, behind the grill, working it hard, working it hard here. As we get set for uh, Game Three, of course, between uh, Golden State and Toronto, that is a tomorrow night out on the West Coast. Game time, nine p.m. And a lot of people are like, what is with these late games? Because game one, if you recall, I think it was back on Thursday right here in Toronto, that was also a 9 p.m. start. 
And for a lot of folks, particularly those with kids, I mean, this is way, way too late. I mean, these games aren't ending till like 1130 near midnight. And I kind of get it in terms of the West Coast, because even if the tip-off is 9 p.m. out there in Oakland, it's still only 6 p.m. I mean, folks there got to get home as well and would like to see, see the game too. But what do you do if you've got in particular, you know, smaller children, small children that uh, you got to keep them on a schedule, you got to keep them a regular on a regular bedtime. Should you allow them to break curfew to see the uh, Raptors in the final? Let's welcome in parenting expert Allison Schaefer. She joins us here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Allison, always nice to speak with you. How are you? I'm good, Jeff. How are you? Very good, thanks. Uh, what is your advice to parents here? I mean, this is a kind of a historic series, right? First time a Canadian team has been in the NBA final, and you want to create memories for your kids, but uh, should you be allowing them to stay up so late, so far past their bedtime? So, you know, I don't want to dictate to parents what they should or should not do because you know your kids best and you know if they have an exam because we're writing exam period two. I, I mean, and some kids just don't do well with less sleep. But honestly, if you are a total diehard Raptor fan and your kid loves these people and you're all going to be in the living room watching the game, I say we make an exception to the rule. Yes, we need to have schedules and we need to have routine for kids and that's all healthy development. But, but within that, there's got to be the exceptions to the rules. And this, if you're a basketball fan this is historic and and it's also it's it's national community right i mean the the feeling of connectedness and community that torontonians and canadians are feeling about this event is so special so very special in a time when you know one of the big issues with childhood is that people are feeling isolated and we don't have enough things that make us feel connected and bonded so to me this ranks as one of the exceptions to the rule i'd say yeah break curfew let them stay up bring on the popcorn <laughs> you, you know I, i'm so glad you mentioned and talked about the connectedness because uh, i'm with you i mean there's such a feeling of community not only just in this city uh and you know there's some people that are on about the bandwagoners and the people that are just kind of enjoying the moment and aren't are aren't so-called diehard fans but you know what Allison I think that's okay because you're absolutely right I mean we're all in this kind of shared moment and I think that this is something I mean are you going to look back uh, with your kids seven or eight years from now and say I'm really proud of myself as a parent because I made sure they stuck to their bedtime or are you going to be thinking about uh, you know sharing the Raptors in the NBA final with them yeah and just ask any parent to go back themselves through their little Rolodex of childhood memories and what are those things that stood out, right? These really are those special moments, those special memories. Like I remember the first man walked on the moon on my sixth birthday, man. That was that was super, super special. And I'm sure other people have these just memories of being together, watching something big, watching it with the crowd. It, I think it's just wonderful. So, yeah, so miss a bit of sleep. Be a bit grumpy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I remember, it's funny, harkening back to your childhood memories uh, a few years later down the road, I, I used to beg my parents if I could please stay up to see, uh, and I kind of laugh looking back now, but Three's Company. Can I stay up to like nine o'clock, please, and see Three's Company? Like, no, you got to go to bed. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that rates as one of those exceptional, uh, you know, nothing not to knock them. <laughs> well, no, I kind of have to side with you on that. But uh, what is the importance? Uh, let's just flip this around. The importance of keeping a regular uh, bedtime and a regular schedule uh, for kids. I, I mean, the exception to the rule has got got to be, you know, the Raptors and enjoying the final, but. 
keeping a schedule, what are kind of the positives or the benefits uh, for parents and for kids? So the benefit is that kids are looking for predictability in their life in order to feel safe and secure. And so when you take anything and you routinize it and you, you do it over and over again, it becomes sort of automatic. So you get less fighting at bedtime. There's a predictability to life that actually psychologically makes them feel more settled. Um, and I learned this from, um, well, obviously from my training and, and whatnot as a family counselor, but I started as a nursery school teacher. And these kids would come in, it's like, first you hang up your coat, then you get your puzzle, you go to the puzzle time, then we sit in a circle, then we flick the lights, then it's snack time. And they thrive in this environment because they, it's not this randomness, what's happening next. So it allows them to learn the rules, no expectations, behave pro-socially. So I'm not saying you have to run your house like a drill sergeant and have every minute scheduled exactly to the clock. But to have that idea of, you know, first we have dinner, then we have playtime, then we wind down, we have stories, pajamas. The, the mind actually begins to recognize the pattern and we start to secrete serotonin and we actually do start getting ready for sleep mode. The brain gets ready to sleep and adults should do the same thing too. We should have the same evening routine to wind us down and shut off our minds from the day and get to bed at the same time every night. That That's a biological um, important piece for adults as well. Yeah, I was going to say these are lessons if you learn them early and in childhood that really do carry over to adulthood. And I'm just thinking about keeping that regular schedule but occasionally, as we just mentioned, an exception to the rule, like staying up for the Raptors final. Uh, I'm just thinking about it as an adult and, and the way I, I eat. I mean, I try to keep to a certain schedule with it, with my eating through the week. And then Saturday is my exception to the rule where, you know, I'll, you know, have a few drinks and uh, maybe indulge in, the, you know, a cheat meal or something I wouldn't normally have, say, on a Wednesday night. And hey, I just came back from a trip to Switzerland, and I would never eat two two hundred grams of cheese in one sitting. But if you're at the top of the Alps and you're on the balcony after crawling through the mountains, you have a whole basket of bread and you eat that two hundred grams of greener with cheese because it makes a memory. <laughs> so yeah, I'll burn it off later at home, and I'm not going to do it every single day. So those exceptions to the rule stand out. They're special, um, and. Uh, so I, I, I do think there is room for that. That, that um, our- so reminds me, sorry, of uh, our friend Kyle over in the morning show, who's our wellness uh, expert. And he told me this story that he was uh, sticking to the strict regimen, this diet. He was eating nothing but salads. And he went on this trip to, to California. And he looks back now because he stuck to the regimen. Everybody else was having a great time in wine country and, uh, you know, living it up. And he, he was sitting there having salads. And he looks back now. It's like, why was I doing that? I really ruined what should have been a great memory. Yeah, I completely agree. Now, if parents are listening about sleep, I've got to tell you, there's a lot of sleep research that says that kids today are getting an hour less sleep on average than they did just a decade ago. And even four minutes, five minutes of sleep actually does change our cognitive functioning the next day. So it's not as if I don't take sleep seriously. I really, really do. Um, but I also know that, to your point about diet, it's what you do day in and day out that speaks to your health and your routine. So those one-offs, those little outlier data points, do not make childhood. You know, that's, that's, that's okay. So, yeah, so live it up like, with the kids oh, uh, tomorrow night and actually uh, enjoy that Raptors-Golden uh, State game. Let's have them just win all the rest of the game so that this is done quickly. Yeah. Here, <laughs> <laughs> here. Right? You need to put the kids to bed. Can you just win the next two? Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. We, we appreciate that. Uh, the entire country appreciates it. Uh, parenting expert Allison Schaefer with us this afternoon. Allison, appreciate the time as always. All right. Have a great day. Wake up, we're almost there.
Uh, Stephen A. Smith, there's a name, pretty big uh, name, a uh, name of some uh, renown in the States when it comes to uh, sports and sports broadcasting. And uh, Stephen A., which, by the way, I love it when somebody uses the middle initial, because if you if you don't, he's just like Steve Smith. Who? So you go, Stephen A. Smith. Uh, Stephen A. took on uh, Raptors fans after uh, Game 2 back on a Sunday night. Uh, here's what he had to say on his broadcast about us uh, yesterday. Have a listen. I'm going to call the Toronto fans out for this. That second half, when the Golden State Warriors went on an 18-0 run, the arena was half full. People were in the concession stands. We were at the game. This is the NBA Finals. This is a great city with great fans, but those first few minutes when the Toronto Raptors were victims of Golden State's 18-0 run, half the damn fans in the arena were, were at the concession stands. Question. That's inexcusable. The lower bowl was empty. There's practically nobody. Like, Drake wasn't in his seat. Uh, nobody was along courtside. And I'd say a good, like, I don't know, five to ten rows up from courtside. It was scattered at best. And uh, I remember sitting there watching the game and saying, uh, like, this is the fun. Like, Stephen A. was just saying, this is the NBA final. These folks have paid big dollars for these tickets. Like, uh, how important is it grabbing a hot dog? I mean, how important is it to get... Like a, a Pepsi. I would be back in my seat like with two, three minutes ready to go, just uh, eagerly awaiting the start of the second half. And we've seen like Scotiabank Arena through these playoffs. I mean, it's electric in there. It is loud, like loud, loud. And does that have some sort of an effect on the visiting team and on the opponent? And if fans had been in their seat to start the second half, not saying that Golden State wouldn't have went on a bit of a run, but could the fans, the so-called six-man could they have mitigated mitigated the damage that was done? Maybe instead it's a 6 or an 8 run, 8-0 run, instead of 18. Because that really did turn the game. I mean, Raps, to their credit, played some great defense and got back into it and came pretty close there uh, near the end. The only, I mean, the only reason that you honestly got to leave is to relieve yourself is to go to the bathroom. You do not even have to get up. You can order drinks to your seat now through your phone. Do you think it's kind of a commentary on what we've been talking about over the last week or so when it comes to ticket prices? And you have to wonder, particularly in the lower bowl, how many fans are sitting in there with the exorbitant uh, ticket prices that these are more corporate types. And we've you know heard this for, for years when it comes to the Leafs and the Raptors, that nobody's there for the start of the second or third period or the second half because they're more worried about you know getting sushi or whatever the case uh, may be in a restaurant. And eventually they'll get back to their seats that uh, the average fan can't afford or don't have access uh, to those tickets. I will say this, after Stephen A. Smith's uh, comments, I am going to be watching closely uh, tomorrow night for the second half in Oakland. And I want to see how many fans are in their seats to start the second half. I'm going to really be looking at that uh, lower bowl when the second half uh, starts uh, tomorrow night uh, on the road. And just do a little uh, comparison and uh, see how the Golden State fans are in comparison to us uh, here in Toronto. But uh, it, it seems as if, uh, anyways, in that lower bowl, there weren't a lot of people that were too anxious to get back for the start of the uh, second half the other night. Going up, never coming down. Yeah. My feet got lifted straight up off the ground. Yeah. See me on top, headed for the crown. Say that I-
I'm the one that's what they call me now. Yeah. Going up, never coming down. Yeah. My feet got lifted straight up off the ground. Yeah. See me on top, headed for the crown. Said it, I'm the one that's what they call me now. Yeah. Bet you wanna know this side gets so fresh. Yeah. Okay, is there anything more stressful than a job interview? I don't think so. Although it's been years, literally, since I've uh, been on one. I've been with this company uh, for so long. You just kind of, you know, after a while you progress uh, through the company and you get certain offers and you don't have to, I guess, go through the the rigors, if you will, of of a job interview. Although I do remember, if I hearken back to the very start of my radio career, I remember uh, getting an interview at this uh, small little independent station in St. Thomas, Ontario. It had just launched and uh, they called me in for an interview. And I remember driving up to the station, and I couldn't find it, and it was like in behind a dentist's office uh, off the main street, and then I finally found this building, and I'm sitting there in the parking lot, and I'm looking, I'm like, is that really it? Is that really this radio station? Like, it looked like a bomb shelter. It was like one of those old brick buildings that had been painted brick and had been peeling off. Sounds like small town radio. And I still remember sitting in my car thinking, am I really going in here? Am I really going to go in here for a job interview? And, you know, thank God I did because I had a great two years there and uh, learned so much and made so many great friends that I still have to this day. And I look back uh, on that time in that radio station because, again, it was independently owned. uh, So so the owner was there in his office and uh, the, the station was the Hawk. And I swear he had, when you go into uh, the, Vern was his name, into the uh, boss, the owner's uh, office, he had a huge hawk statue in his credenza. And so you'd sit down and you'd talk to Vern, the owner, in the job interview, and they're like this big winged bird is over him. Just staring at you? Yeah, that, that's not daunting. That's not haunting at all. And uh, this is way back when, like, he's smoking in his office. And uh, like, so it was just a tiny little operation. And I still remember uh, uh, Janet, his daughter, she was the bookkeeper slash receptionist there. And so anytime a call would come in for Vern, uh, she would get on the intercom. And she had one of those really high-pitched voices. And she'd be like, Pops, 101, 101 for Pops. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was like the best time. So I'm so glad I, I look back at sitting in my car for 10 minutes wondering, am I really going to go in for this uh, job interview? And again, thank goodness I, I did. Uh, Dusty, you were saying that you had a kind of a traumatic experience, uh, what one job interview. Yeah, there was one that I went that really sticks in my mind. Um, it was uh, for a radio station and it was supposed to be for social media. And well, that's what it, mostly that's what the listing said. There's social media, and I go in and I get all those questions about social media. Pretty, uh, I get them, you know, I nail them. Yeah, um, but like it was like this panel of people. Like, like you were expecting just to talk to like the, the head. Yeah, of yeah, social I thought it was, media exactly, just yeah. like the 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 media department. And it turned out to be three people, and not only that, not only was it three people, but there was a program director, there was a host, and an accountant for some reason. <laughs> then they go into. Um, they start asking me about coding and programming and HTML and all that, and I have absolutely no idea about any of that. So how were you feeling? Like, I were you was getting sweating anxious? buckets. I was yeah. stuck to my chair. That was the only time I've ever actually experienced that that experience of being stuck to my chair due to my sweat because I was so stressed out. Hot. Yeah. Can I, can I ask what color shirt you were wearing that day? Oh, I yeah. hope black. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think I might have been gone with a safe choice and gone with black. I think, yeah, you got to either go black or white. 
Those... Mm, you can still see the sweat stains in a white shirt. Yeah, but not... Well, it's true. I think white is your best second choice. Black is for... Do not go with blue. Yeah, not a light blue. Light no. or a dark blue. No, because uh, you, you can see the zeros pretty quickly. <laughs> when you wear that shirt. But it is. It is just so tension-filled having a job interview. And sometimes, no matter how much you uh, prepare for the questions about, uh, you know, your skills, your relevant skills and experiences, I mean, you can still feel pretty daunted. And uh, sometimes you just can't prepare for a job interview. Like with this one employer who has uh, revealed that he has a coffee cup trick that he uses to catch potential employees during a job interview and if you fail the coffee cup trick or challenge you are not going to get a job offer regardless of how good your answers have been or your job experience or how good your resume looks if you fail the coffee cup trick or challenge no job now this guy's name is trent innes he uh, owns a software firm called zero australia and he says that he uses this tactic in every single interview that he conducts for conducts for his company and he says uh, this trick will reveal just how selfless a potential employee is. And it's an attribute he believes is very important in employees in making his company a success. So whenever somebody comes in, apparently for an interview, what uh, Mr. Innes does is he deliberately takes them on a tour past the kitchen and makes sure that they walk away with a hot drink. Whether it be coffee, tea, whatever. Make sure that, the, that they walk away with a hot drink. And after the interview is done, he then watches to see if the person either offers or attempts to take that empty coffee or teacup back to the kitchen. If they just leave their cup on the table and thank the, thank them for the interview and leave, they're not getting a job. Ooh, that's rough. That's tough. <laughs> Again, you can do whatever you want to prepare for a job interview, but uh, who's prepared for the coffee cup trick? Now, he says this, Trent Innes, that uh, if you do come in and you have an interview, as soon as you come in and you meet me, I will always take you for a walk down past uh, the kitchen. We will have our interview. And he says, I'm always looking for at the end of the interview if this uh, person will just do one thing and take that empty mug back to the kitchen. He says you can develop skills, you can gain knowledge and experience, but when it comes down to attitude, and uh, the attitude that uh, we talk a lot about is a concept of uh, being selfless in our company is basically wash your coffee cup. And I wonder if you get extra points for actually washing it as well. I mean, it's one thing just to take it back. and Because I see that a lot uh, here, here at Chorus. Mugs everywhere. Like just in the sink. Yeah. And or even just in random spots left behind in a studio. So I'm wondering if uh, you're going to get the job offer at this company for just taking it back to the the kitchen and leaving it in the sink. I mean, what happens if you wash the mug, dry it, and put it back? I mean, uh, are you all of a sudden a senior VP? That would be nice. Yeah, I think you should start washing all the dishes. (laughs) What if you take the mug, but then you just take it home? Oh yeah, I'm sorry. I thought this was like a gift, just a you know a parting gift, a uh, collector's item. So. You know, actually, speaking of coffee mugs, that is one thing I have never had because radio is famous for this, right? Is uh, putting uh, the morning show on a coffee mug and handing it out to listeners. I firmly believe that is the kiss of death. Yeah, I don't want a mug, ever. No, I, I never, ever want my name or my show 
on a coffee mug. I just thought of that because I picked up the coffee mug I'm using, and I'm not going to name names, but uh, sure enough, the coffee mug I have right here, people no longer with the station. Well, if you're thinking of employing the coffee cup a trick at your place of work, well, it's, it hasn't been more affordable than right now. And it may be hard to believe based on how much maybe you shelled out for your morning cup of joe today. But the price of coffee has fallen to its lowest level in more than a decade. Now, the price of a pound of Arabica coffee has a dip below a dollar U.S. this year. That's about half of what it was as recently as 2016. Yet the price of a cup of coffee around town is as expensive as ever. So what gives? Let's welcome in Stuart McCook. He is a historian at the University of Guelph. He specializes in histories of the environment, science, and coffee. And he joins us here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Stuart, good afternoon. Hi, how are you? I'm well, thanks, and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, Let's start, if we could, with the reasons why the price of coffee has uh, dipped uh, to one of its uh, lowest levels in uh, more than a decade. Uh, well, what's going on here? What's at play? Well, there's, uh, there's a bunch of things at play. Uh, there are um, things like uh, overproduction in some parts of the world. Brazil produces about a third of the world's coffee, and it's had a couple of bumper harvests, which uh, have caused uh, global oversupply. Um, there's changing exchange rates, too. So the Brazilian real has been devalued, which means that um, there's a lot of incentive for Brazilians to pump even more money, more coffee, I should say, onto the global markets. And then some people are talking about uh, speculation in the long-term future markets, which are driving coffee prices down. All right. So that is on the uh, supply side. Uh, what about the demand side uh, when it comes to coffee? Uh, I was reading that uh, every second of every day, there's like some 35,000 cups of coffee that are consumed around the world. That's according to the United Nations. Yeah. Uh, demand demand is certainly growing, although right now we've got um, uh, we've got a little we're at a moment where supply is kind of exceeding demand. So it's it's hard for a variety of reasons to uh, match supply and demand. And so what happens is at the moments where coffee prices are higher, often what's going on, at least in part, is that that, uh, production has briefly fallen below demand. Um, but because you know coffee is is a crop and subject to climate and environment and other changes, it's hard to kind of balance these things out reliably from one year to the next. All right. Well, can consumers can they expect the price of a cup of joe to to drop? Uh, you know, in the next little while here. I mean, if supply is outstripping uh, demand, I mean, shouldn't price, according to the basic laws of economics, economics sort of settle or uh, come down a little bit? Well, I think I think what you need to do is is uh, I mean, in a, in a in an ideal world, yes, that would be great. Speaking as a consumer perspective and somebody who loves to drink coffee, but I th- I think what we need to keep in mind too is that the um, 
the price that is paid to the grower is only a part of the price uh, that the con- uh, pri- part of the total cost of coffee. Remember, the coffee has to be shipped from uh, the producing areas up to here. It has to be roasted and ground and distributed, and all of those add costs onto the final product. Uh, and then if you're thinking about uh, your listeners who might like a latte, uh, then you realize that, in fact, uh, the actual coffee in the cup is a small part of everything that's in there. So the so in, in that respect, then, uh, no, I don't think we can expect uh, our prices to drop anytime soon. Yeah, when you talk about the transportation of the good, of uh, coffee beans, particularly all the way uh, from Brazil, uh, forgive my ignorance, but is coffee or coffee beans, are they a particularly perishable uh, product? Or if they're shipped in whole bean form, uh, would they not last for some time? They, they do last for some time. They're often shipped uh, in what's called green beans. So they're unroasted and, and still wrapped in what's called parchment, which is kind of like a dried skin around the beans. And then they're uh, milled and roasted usually up here in the north. All right. Uh, and when we talk about uh, the price of uh, coffee and the supply, I think some people, coffee lovers that are listening right now, might be uh, equating this to uh, gas prices and that it seems like uh, when it comes to uh, gas when the uh, you know supply is uh, plentiful and we think that the gas prices should be dropping it takes a long long time to see the change in the price of the pump but uh, whenever a uh, supply is uh, down all of a sudden it's like overnight the price of gas uh, goes up is yeah. that the same thing when it comes to uh, coffee here that if we are going to see the the supply and uh, price reduction filter down to the consumer it's going to take a little while to get there it's going to take a little while if it happens at all. And and frankly, if I was a consumer, I'd be actually a little bit worried about the low prices because right now what's happening is that the low prices for the producers are hovering right around and sometimes below their cost of production. So a lot of farmers are barely breaking even and many are losing money. And over the long term, what might happen is that a lot of these people – uh, will decide to just exit coffee production altogether. And I don't think that's good for any of us. Yeah. Would you know offhand, uh, Stuart, uh, what it roughly uh, costs, say, a Tim Hortons or a Starbucks to uh, produce a uh, cup of coffee? Because, you know, there's a lot of people that grouse now about uh, the price of coffee. And remember, it was like a buck for a cup of coffee in those days are long gone. Uh, yeah. Are consumers justified in feeling like maybe they're getting taken advantage of? Um, I, I don't I don't have a, a price breakdown. I, I'm sure the companies are, are operating at a healthy profit. So uh, I couldn't speak to the, the details, though, of what that profit is. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, just uh, and they're sourcing their beans uh, from all over. You mentioned uh, Brazil, of course, being the, the major supplier of uh, coffee beans. Uh, you know, where else? I mean, I think of Jamaica when I think of uh, coffee uh, as well. Uh, would it depend where the bean is coming from as well? And if it's uh, from a more exotic location, obviously the cost goes up. Yeah, the cost goes up. Uh, I think uh, Jamaica produces, uh, Jamaica Blue Mountain has for a long time been some of the world's best coffee, but uh, quantity-wise, it's pretty small. Uh, there's a lot of con- a lot of coffee from, uh, you can think of it as a chain of mountains in, in the Western Americas, so the Andes up through Central America and Mexico, which produce some of the world's best coffees. Uh, and, you know, you think Costa Rica, Guatemala, uh, Colombia, places like that. And um, those coffees tend to be more expensive because they're better quality than your commodity-grade Brazilians. 
Um, but that quality is not just about varietal. It's about how carefully it's harvested and how carefully it's processed. So a lot of work goes into those coffees, and the price often reflects that. Yeah, and just finally, when we speak of price, and I'm looking at a graph here and a bit of a breakdown when it comes to coffee around the world, uh, Rome is still right around a buck for a cup yeah. of uh, coffee, but uh, Toronto on average, two twenty-three. Compared yeah. to New York, which is $3.12 for the average uh, cup yeah. of coffee. But obviously, we've got to factor in things like uh, rent as well. Yeah. The, the, the thing is I, that, that troubles me about all of this stuff, too, is that um, once, the, once the coffee leaves the farm, sort of there are minimum prices set. Like, you know, you've got to pay your barista minimum wage. The price of transportation is the price of transportation and so on and so forth. But the only people who are kind of like fully exposed to the market uh, and sort of a take it or leave it situation are the producers. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, like I said, I'm I'm worried about the long-term vulnerability. So, I mean, everybody accepts the sort of costs of doing business farther up the commodity chain. But right at the beginning of it is where the people are most vulnerable. And ultimately, the commodity chain does depend on them. All right. Great point. We'll have to leave it there. Stuart, thank you so much. Appreciate the time with us this afternoon. Thanks. It's a pleasure. I need coffee.